absolutely. Yep, that's exactly uh, how it is. And so, yeah, you have to present more evidence uh, to show that there's a need that for it to be a no knock. Uh, we didn't even attempt to. We weren't. We weren't trying for that. I mean, this is uh, a you know, it's it's a marijuana grow. We weren't necessarily worried about him being able to destroy evidence it's not like he's going to be able to go and flush the grow so <laughs> so so we got it uh we had been to the house many times so but, but that's the point i want to ask you that you guys have been to the house five times D- either this guy didn't get the message or he's stupid because if the cops had been to my house five times i got to figure at some point you're coming back with a warrant mm-hmm. either he's too you know I'm, I'm thinking like let me get rid of this stuff uh but apparently he didn't. Yeah, he had a, I mean, he obviously had a completely different mindset. His he knew we were coming back. I mean, and and ultimately that comes out uh, as the story unfolds. And rather than get rid of it, he just prepared for us in a different way. So uh, so we, we had gone there enough. We we knew the the layout of the house the best we could. We had done all of our scouts, and then anytime we would serve a warrant, we would do uh, a risk assessment. And we had a matrix that we would use um, to fill in information. And, and it would be essentially, it's like a, a scorecard. You put the known information that, it, that you have, and it, there's points that are um, assigned to certain things. And that scorecard will tell you who serves the search warrant. Um, in our particular case, there, the matrix, you know, is zero to, to say 30. Um, certain things can would score points on the matrix if he's known to be violent if he's this or or known to you know to use a gun simply having a gun doesn't raise the matrix at all because again out in the west out here everybody has firearms um so we did the matrix um if the score came back at a 20 to a 25 that meant we had to consult with the SWAT team and just basically have them buy off on our plan on how we were going to serve the search warrant if the score was 25 or above then that meant the SWAT team itself had to serve the search warrant anything other than that my unit would serve the warrant and we would average anywhere between you know 130 to 150 search warrants a year is what we were doing back at, at the time so so we did a lot of search warrants a lot of entries trained for it and uh when we did this, the matrix on it, uh, the minimum for a narcotics warrant was a 10. Like if it was a narcotics warrant, that was 10 points. And then if it was a no-knock warrant, that was zero points. But if it was a knock-and-announce warrant, just because you know sometimes it can be a little more dangerous announcing your president, that gave you a one point. And that's what it came out as, was, a, was an 11, which is about the lowest score that you can get uh, in terms of looking over the risk assessment and, and what we – of known dangers. So obviously the, we were going to serve this warrant ourselves. our, our unit was, and we had a, uh, um, so we, we had our briefing, we went over the plan. Um, everybody knew their assignments. We, the plan was, is that we would use that carport door and that's where we would make contact. You know, we'd go up to the house, we'd knock and make contact, hopefully get the homeowner to answer the door. Um, once the homeowner answered the door and we went into the home, we would clear the home, but we would do it in a way that we call slowly and deliberately, meaning we're not just running through the home. We're, we're slowly doing it. You're, you're slicing the, the corners, 
uh, calling out, announcing your presence, making it known that the police are here serving a warrant. Um, guys, we decided to split the team in half. And with that carport door, uh, I talked earlier about how there was a landing there and there's steps leading to go upstairs. And then there's a whole bunch of steps leading to the basement. And we could split the team in half, use that door, the half the team's securing the upstairs while simultaneously the other half of the team is securing the basement. So that was kind of the plan. Um, Just to clarify one point in your search warrant, so it's not going to announce if nobody responds, you have the authority to breach the door though, right? Yes, we do. Uh, The way that the law reads is that you need to give a reasonable amount of time. And and, and that's essentially how, uh, how vague it can be. So typically, you know, uh, 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 30 seconds to a minute is generally the standard. I mean, it obviously depends on the size of the house. This particular house is very small. It's probably 900 square feet upstairs and 900 square feet basement. So just a, a really small home. So that was the plan. Uh, after briefing, everybody went and geared up, uh, put on all their stuff, their vests, things like that, identifying them as police, raid jackets, police, hats, police. Now the interesting thing here, and and you know, and I'll tell you the I'll tell you the story, the good and the bad. You know, the the lessons that that were bad on me and that I've learned. I went back to my locker, and uh, and I grabbed my my vest and uh, my uh, my bullet uh, proof vest is is what everyone would know it as. And well, I more to- more commonly known as a bullet resistant vest, because as we're finding out with a lot of the more of the firepower that's out there a lot of times unless you've got the ceramic plate or the level four yeah exactly well i went to put mine on and as i was strapping it the the way that they fit over you is with velcro straps you know you strap them and then the velcro sits to the front of your chest and as i pulled mine on the velcro on mine on the right side ripped off uh my just you know i had used it so many times that it finally just broke and uh and i actually remember thinking uh this is just a stupid little marijuana grow it's not a big deal. These aren't that dangerous. And I put my vest in my locker and put my jacket on that said police and just thought, you know what? I, I won't need it for this small of a thing and and didn't wear it that particular day, which, you know, comes into play here later. Uh, everybody is uh, assigned their role. And then the plan was is a lot of times we would do our search warrants. We had a, a, a raid van where everybody on the team would get in one van. And, and drive up. But on this particular warrant where we were anticipating having to take down um, this grow, we decided to take a whole bunch of different vehicles, anticipating a ton of evidence. Uh, once we got the search warrant, the, the plan had kind of changed, you know, where we were going up to the house before and we're to just probably had plucked his plants and taken them. Now, because we have a search warrant and everything involved, we we're going to have to go through the whole process of, of cataloging all of the evidence and, and dismantling the entire grow. We still weren't planning on taking into jail. It still wasn't worth that type of resource, but certainly, you know, we're taking it, had to take a different route now that it, we had a search warrant involved. So we all drove two to a person or two to a car, two persons to a car up to um, the area. How many are on the team now? How many folks are you sending to do this search warrant? Nine. And Steve Zaccardi on light duty obviously can't participate on the warrants, but he wanted to help. So he was like, I'll come 
and, uh, and, and help as well. So he was coming as well, but he wasn't part of the entry. He's like, I'll just wait across the street at the church. And once the home's secure, I'll come in and, and be like the evidence scribe and, and help package evidence and, and things of that nature. So we all, the plan was, is we'd all leave the office. And like I say, there was a, a church across the street. The plan was, is we would all park in the back of the church, meet up there, and then walk over towards the, the suspect's home. And that's what we did. Uh, by the time we met at the church was about 8.20 in the evening. And as we moved over to the house was, was closer to, you know, 8.30, 8.35, that time frame. Now, did you have any tools with you for entry? Or are you guys just going to kick the door? Or do you have some breaching tools? We have some breaching tools. We have what's uh, we have one tool that's called the hooligan. It's this uh, long uh, metal. It's a like fire a department bar. tool. You guys wanted yeah, to be firefighters. <laughs> <laughs> we're, using it, we're, we're using it for for the right way, you know, to get in dope houses. <laughs> there you go. That's what you need it for. Yeah, it's like essentially a crowbar that you can use to pop screen doors. And then the other thing that we had is called a ram. It's just this great big, you know, heavy cylinder with with handles that you can hit a door, uh, hit you know, you, you aim for the doorknob, and and you can pop a door open if you have to force entry. And now the funny thing about that is, is as we were leaving the office, uh, I'm coming out of my office about the same time Jared Frankham is coming out of his office. Now, the thing about Jared was, is Jared was a huge dude. I mean, a big bodybuilder. I mean, the guy, the guy, uh, lived in the gym and, and, and it showed, I mean, just a massive guy. He was one of those guys that always carried around a gallon of water. You know, he was always drinking water and just, just, you know, really into fitness. And as we're leaving the office, him and I are, are heading out of the office and he was assigned as the Ram in the event that we needed to force entry, he would be the, the one with the Ram. And as we're leaving, he turns to me and he's like, Hey Sarge, you know, if I end up having to, uh, use the Ram, I'll put a clinic on for you. I'll, I'll show you how to properly Ram a door. And, you know, he just like cops do, you know, talking shit to each other. And, and I'm like, Oh really, Jared, are you, you're going to, you're going to put a, you're going to put a Ram clinic on. You're going to teach us all how to properly use it. And, and he's like, yep, yep, I sure am. And so we kind of laughed at that and, and went our way. So we get up to the church, uh, Again, everybody's dressed as, as police officers, uh, making it well known who we are. We make our way um, to the house. We're kind of in a, in a we call it a stick. It's a, a single file line. Everybody has their assignments and they're in a specific order, uh, depending on how they're going to make entry into the home. We go to the carport and, uh, and I peel off and I stand on the front lawn. And as we were approaching the home, there was a faint light on in... Uh, what turned out to be the kitchen. It was that right bay window just to the right of the, the front door. Um, that light was on and, uh, and I was on the front lawn because as we started to t knock and make contact, I was anticipating if someone came to the front door versus that carport door that then I would make contact with them and let them know who we were. I was the police and so on. As we get to the uh, carport, Jason Vanderwerf, who's the case agent, he goes to that carport door and he starts banging on the door. You know, those loud police type knocks. Boom, boom, boom. Police, we have a search warrant. Come to the door. Boom, boom, boom. Police, we have a search warrant. Come to the door. He's the only one talking. Um, everyone else is quiet. And 
and he's loud. And again, me being over around the corner on the front of the lawn watching, I can hear it plain as day. And I'm watching to see if I can see any movement. And I don't see anything happening at all. Um, and I can't tell you exactly how long um, we were there for, pr- probably a minute to a minute and a half, which doesn't sound like a lot of time. Oh, brother, but it's a lifetime when you're waiting yes. for somebody to come to the door. Exactly, exactly. Long enough that I started to get a little nervous. Not that I knew anything was about to happen, not like any type of sixth sense premonition. Just I'm looking at this house, and it's a small little house, and I'm thinking, you know, anywhere in the house that someone's at, they should have been able to come to the door by now. Um, and and somebody in the team obviously was thinking that as well because I heard someone say, hey – it's been long enough. Let's breach the door. It had uh, a screen door, but the screen door wasn't locked, so we didn't need to use the Huli. So they, they open that, and then uh, uh, Jared moves up with the ram. I mean, that was kind of his signal to move up with the ram. And all of a sudden, you just hear boom as Jared rams the door with the ram. As soon as he hits the door, Everyone in on the team starts calling out, police, search warrant, police, search warrant, so so that anyone in the house can hear us. They know it's the police. They know what's going on. Now, the, the funny thing is, it's this is an old home. Uh, it was probably built in the 50s, and the door was flimsy. And when you're hitting a door, like the better doors to hit, it's a good solid door because, you know, you get that mass and it hits it and pops it open. But with this flimsy door, it kind of buckled it. So Jared hits it, and it doesn't pop open. So he has to hit it again, has to hit it again. And he ends up hitting it five times before he's able to kind of knock it open. And he put kind of a hole in it and kind of knocked it down. whole time, everyone's screaming, police search warrant. Once the door's open, the team starts to move in. The guys that are assigned to go upstairs start filtering into the upstairs. And the guys that are assigned as the downstairs entry team go down and are, and are starting to clear it. And I'm coming around the corner. Uh, nobody had came to the front door. I didn't see any movement. And as I'm coming around the corner, Jared's standing there about that same time, he's starting to, to set the ram down on the sidewalk. And he looks at me and, you know, cops are always busting each other's balls. I mean, that's just the, the culture. And he knows it's coming. Like he knows it's coming. I remember he had this little like sheepish grin on his face. And I look at him and I'm like, uh, I say to him, Hey, what's up with all these muscles, dude? Like they must be for looks only because they sure as hell don't work. Cause how many times did you have to hit the door? I thought you were going to put this clinic on, on how to ram a door. And he looks right at me and he says, fuck you, Sarge, you know? And we have this moment where we laugh and he goes into the house and then I go into the house. I'm assigned as part of the, the downstairs team. So I immediately head down the stairs. I can hear everybody in the house calling out police search warrant. As I get to the bottom of the stairs, the basement is really just an unfinished basement with the, except for that grow room that I had talked about. So by the time I get to the bottom of the stairs, I can hear the the guys that are assigned to the downstairs are, are calling out. They're saying, you know, basement secure, clear, basement's clear, uh, meaning that they've already secured the basement. And they're able to do that so quickly because it was just an unfinished square. And as, so as they come in and, and dig their corners and, and hit that area, there's just no one down there. And someone had even uh, opened the door to the grow room and had gone in there and the grow room was clear. 
So I turn and step into the grow room. And that room that we had suspected was a marijuana grow room was, in fact, the, the marijuana grow room. So as I'm down there, and as I talk about this and, and kind of tell you, I'll, I'm gonna, I'll tell you exactly what was happening, like each thought. And it'll take me a minute or two to explain the thought. But the reality is everything's happening in a fraction of a second. Um, so I'm down there. I go into the grow room. I'm looking at the grow and I'm kind of deciding, I, I remember looking at it uh, and trying to decide how we were going to go about dismantling it and, and getting in there and getting it all done as quick as we could and move on to the other case that we were going to work that night with our informant that we knew to be a bigger case. How many plants were in there? Uh, I think total ended up being 18. So just like, again, very, 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 very small scale. Like this is nothing that, not a big thing at all. As I'm looking at it, I can hear the guys upstairs uh, calling out, you know, police search warrant as they're slowly moving through the home, um, which is kind of a double-edged sword because that also lets – you're announcing who you are and where you're at, but it's also if, if someone's in there with ill intentions, you're, you're sitting ducks and they know exactly where you're at, which is what happened in this case. So while I'm looking at the plants, what's happening upstairs, the guys are moving through the upstairs. They're clearing it. They go through the kitchen. There's a living room. They had cleared that. There's this little half hallway. It's probably about maybe three feet long, two feet wide, and it has a, it has a wall to the left that's like four feet tall. It's just this little half wall. And on the other side of it is the living room. And I mean, if you can think of this house as just a square, it was just a square. So you're in the, you know, the bottom half of the square and you're starting to move into the, the top half of the square. So you got this little hallway that leads into a second hallway. And that second hallway had a bedroom at each end of it and a bathroom. And what we would do is we would train. You never would go anywhere by yourself while you're clearing a home. Um, we were fortunate. We had um, a training facility in Weber County that was really world-renowned. It was called the Swanson Tactical Training Center. It's this huge training center. I mean, they had a, a city in there. They had school and saloon and convenience stores, hotels, and you could do a lot of training in there. Well, you had training. Murphy's ears when you said saloon, like drinking and yeah, <laughs> belly up to the bar. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm when when we get through the shootout and stuff, I'll tell you about us. I'll tell you a saloon story. But uh, so everything was in there. So we trained, and so the with as many warrants as we were doing, everybody knew how to move together. I mean, we we were good at that type of stuff. So was one of the guys named Sean Grogan. He's he's in that little half hallway, which leads into the bigger hallway. And because it's an intersection, like a T intersection where he's going into an unknown area, he stops and he says support. What that means is, is for someone else, he's not going to move any further into the home until someone else on the team comes up, taps him on the shoulder, lets him know, hey, you're not alone. And then they will turn and move into the new to that new section of the home. So that's what's happening. Uh, Grogan taps, calls support. Derek Draper uh, taps him on the shoulder and they turn and start moving down the hallway. And as they're moving down the hallway, they're still calling out police, identifying themselves that they're serving a search warrant. Grogan says that the end of the hallway was the bedroom and the bedroom door was 
mostly closed. It was maybe open about uh, 10 inches. The home was dark. The light in the kitchen was on, which was backlighting us, but this portion of the home was dark. And again, this is happening upstairs. I'm not part of it. I'm downstairs looking at the at the grow. But what happens is, is Grogan's moving his way down to that last bedroom. And as he goes to push the door open, all of a sudden a hand comes around the corner, not the person or anything, just a hand. And it point blank is holding a, a nine millimeter Beretta. And it is right in Grogan's face. I mean, you're talking two inches at the most. It's just point blank in his face. Um, obviously what had happened is the suspect was in the house and was waiting and was hearing them and knew when they were coming. So as he starts to open that door, he was just waiting around the corner and sticks the gun right in his face and pulls the trigger. Now, the thing that saves Grogan's life is, is he flinches a little bit, slightly turns his head. So as that shot goes off, it goes through uh, kind of at an angle and shatters his jaw and goes through, through the, his jaw. Uh, but rather than take it dead on in the face, which would have, you know, clipped his, his brainstem and killed him, just that slight little flinch saves him. So he's shot through the face. He falls into a little bathroom that was right there. I mean, just a tiny little bathroom. And Derek Draper's right behind him. Derek Draper sees the gun come around the corner and what he does is falls backwards and lands on his back and a couple of shots go right over the top of his head and then grogan i mean this is absolutely amazing uh story i mean on his part and the guy shot through the head he easily could have just i mean i think most people would have just laid there and died that's not who grogan is he's not gonna just go without a fight he can't see the suspect and he's in the bathroom, but he has an idea of where he believes the suspect is. So he starts shooting through the wall at the suspect where he believes the suspect is. And Draper does the same thing. He lands on his back. Luckily, the shots missed him, but he, he knows that the suspect was right around that corner when he stuck the gun around the corner. So he starts shooting uh, as well. But it's an old home and there was the framing for the bathroom door and the bedroom door and all that wood essentially stopped it. Uh, and so the suspect wasn't hit. I'm downstairs and I hear boom, boom, boom. That's it. Like three, maybe four shots. The reality was, is at that time there was probably, I think it was 23 shots that were fired. Um, three by the suspect, 15 by, by Grogan and, and uh, a few more by Derek Draper. But I didn't hear all that. I just heard three, four shots and then it was dead silent. And, uh, the first thing that I thought I wanted to hear somebody call out dog. And the reason why is, is because like I say, we served a lot of search warrants and, uh, sometimes you'll get in a house where either it's intentionally, they intentionally train the dog to like protect, uh, the home, the drugs or whatever. And, and so they attack you or, or the dog's just protecting the home. But sometimes we've had dogs attack us and, and if it gets bad enough, we've had to shoot dogs before. And so when I was hoping to hear that term dog, it was because I was hoping that that's what had happened was that there was a, an aggressive dog and that those couple of shots were just putting the dog down. I didn't hear that. Uh, it was real faint at this point. I, I couldn't tell exactly, but I heard something real mumbled, something out, like get out, something out. So again, being in the basement, you have no idea what's going on upstairs, you know, even you just don't have the big picture. Your mind fills in the blanks. And so I figured 
that there, since it wasn't a dog, that there was a suspect and that maybe he had taken a couple of shots at my, my guys and then was trying to escape out of the house. So I assumed that he might be going out of the back. So I come running up the stairs through the carport and turn and I post up in the backyard and I'm expecting to see someone maybe bailing out of a window and I'm going to confront him in the backyard. And, and from this point right here, it's dead silent. I don't hear any more screaming. There's no more gunshots at all. Um, and I sit in the backyard, not very long, just a, just a moment or two. Well, while I was doing that, Draper was yelling at everyone, get out of the house, you know, out, out, get out. And they were all filtering out behind me. Um, and we're starting to set up a perimeter, had called and we're requesting backup and doing all the things that they were supposed to be doing. But because, I mean, just the nature of these things and the way they unfold so fast and everything, you don't see and understand the, you know, just because you're there doesn't mean you know exactly the whole thing that's happening. So I don't see anyone in the backyard. I turn, I know that the shooting's upstairs. So now I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I start to come in, I go through the carport and I start to take a step back into the house with my intent was to go back to upstairs and, and figure out what's going on. And as I do that, Grogan comes running through the kitchen. I'm not even in the house yet. I'm just stepping through the doorway and he's holding his face with both of his hands. And, uh, and it's obvious that he's been shot through the face. Now, the crazy thing again about Grogan is the way that he was able to assess his situation. You know, he was in that bathroom, shot in the face, and he looks around and he sees a bathroom window and he realizes that window's too small. I'm not going to be able to escape out of it. So I'm literally trapped in here. And he wasn't just going to lay there and died. You know, he had shot back and now there's a lull and he had enough presence of mind to jump up and rush through the home because he wasn't just going to lay there and, and be a victim. So as he's coming through the kitchen, he crashes up against a wall. He's bleeding all over, you know, head wounds, obviously bleed a lot. He can't talk to me. So I grab him. Well, there's no more shooting going on. So at that particular time, my focus is on my guy. I mean, I knew his fiance at the time they're married now, knew his kids. And I'm assuming that, okay, the him and the bad guy had a shootout grogan got hit but he must have killed the bad guy i mean just your mind fills in the blanks when you don't know so i i grab him he's able to walk i'm helping to walk him kind of help get him outside get him down to the end of the driveway and steve zaccardi the guy that sergeant that was on light duty had been waiting across the street he comes running up and he's like what's going on and i, I don't know they, they, i think they must have shot him i must you know we have this quick conversation basically that i think that the suspect's in the house dead we can't wait for an ambulance i say you get grogan to the hospital just load him in one of our cars and get him to the hospital and i'll stay here and deal with the officer involved shooting that i'm assuming had just happened uh so he grabs grogan and starts to turn takes him um uh, he's walking him across the street. I turn and I take a step or two up the driveway. And all of a sudden I just hear boom, 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 uh, more gunshots coming from within the house. Um, and at this point it's continuous. Uh, it, it doesn't stop. So my mind shifts again. I realize, okay, it's not a dead suspect in the home. It's still an active shooting and the suspect's still in there. So I go rushing up the driveway. 
I know that it's upstairs. I come through the carport and I start up the stairs. And, you know, the, the cool thing about training and when you train the right way and, and different things is um, it kicks in in the times when you need it to kick in. And as I'm starting up these four steps to get to the upstairs, uh, I it, it, it just naturally, without even thinking it, I just stop. And I realize I can't just charge into the house around the corner into the unknown. You know, who knows where the bullets are flying. So uh, I start to do uh, a technique. I mean, you guys are familiar with it, but called slice the pie, where essentially you're, you're peeking around the corner, you know, slowly so that you can figure out what's going on before you enter the room. And as I'm doing that, what I see is I see Jared Frankham and Casey Burrell, another guy on our team, standing over in that half little hallway that leads into the to the other hallway where Grogan had been shot. But they're standing in that half hallway. And uh, I couldn't – I didn't see Jared exchanging shots with anyone, but I could tell that that's what had happened, that he had been being shot at and had probably shooting back. But what I saw was he was wringing his arm up, his his gun hand, and he had a Glock, and I saw the Glock slide was locked back, indicating that he had just ran out. And he said, I'm out, which would indicate to Casey, the way we would train would be, now Casey would step in front of him and uh, basically cover him while Jared reloads. So that's what I'm seeing happen is, is that arm's coming up, he says I'm out. And all of a sudden, again, this all happens so quick. It's I'm explaining it. It takes a few minutes, but we're talking fractions of a fraction of a second. All of a sudden, Casey and, and uh, Jared just get shot up. Wh- what had happened is, is the suspect had heard them. Uh, I think he had heard them say, I'm out. Now, that bedroom was only less than six feet away. Again, this house is super small. So he's less than six feet away for that other hallway. So he comes charging down the hallway as Casey's shuffling past Jared. They're in that little small hallway that led into the, the other hallway, and they're just sitting ducks. And he's able to just walk, run past him within, you know, 18 inches, two feet, and just shoots him. Casey, who was starting to shuffle in front of Jared, he gets shot in the stomach below his vest kind of bends him over a little. He gets shot directly center mass in his chest, which luckily he had his vest on and that stopped that. And then he gets shot a third time directly in the forehead. And he turns and falls and lands in the fetal position in kind of the front room. Jared gets shot multiple times. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where at this point, and I'll, I'll tell you where Jared was shot here in a second, but he falls and lands on his back kind of more in the kitchen area now the again the the kitchen's lit up but the rest of the house is dark and i have no idea where the suspect is i just know he just dropped two of my guys uh so i'm now turning the corner and i'm charging into the kitchen and uh at this point for me the entire world slows down like everything turns into uh slow motion and it feels like you're running in mud. Like everything is slow and exaggerated. And all of the sudden, I no longer hear any, the the sound of a gunshot. Uh, 
but the kitchen becomes a total war zone. And rather than hear the gunshot, I hear the actual bullet whiz past. I hear, and, and it's just tons of them. He's just lighting up the kitchen and it's just, I feel him like, you know, slides flying past. And then I can hear him hitting things in the kitchen, the, the stove, the fridge, the cabinets, whatever, ricocheting off. So you hear, and then, and everything's moving in slow motion. I don't know where the suspect is. And, uh, you know, and, and the frustrating thing about being shot at, especially in a very tight quarters like that, where he's just unloading on you, uh, as stupid as it sounds, is you don't know where to stand. You know, you, do you stand, you can't see the bullets. So do you stand here? Do you stand here? Do you matrix the bullet? Like, you know, and the only thing that I could think was just keep moving forward. I got to get in here. I got to get my guys. I'm shooting. Uh, honestly, it's just suppressive fire. I'm just trying to keep him at bay so I can get in to get my guys. Cause I don't know where they're at and I'm moving through the kitchen and, uh, and every, like I say, everything is slowed down and I don't hear the gunshots. I just hear that whiz of the bullet to kind of, to, to describe it. It's like, if, if you've ever rode a motorcycle and you're, you're, you know, you're going down the interstate and, and you're really hauling ass and a bug or something flies past you and you feel this like whiz, that's what it feels like. And, and, uh, and I remember I, there was this bag of cat food sitting in his kitchen on the stove. And as I'm running out of the corner of my eyes, I see this bag of cat food like jostle a little bit and a couple of, it was, it was, the bag was friskies and a couple of friskies pop out of the top of the, of the cat food bag. And, and again, everything is slowing down and you're like hypersensitized where you just see everything. And I remember thinking, oh shit, he just shot his cat food. Like weird, you know, in this moment. And anytime I go to Walmart and, and see that brand of cat food I always think of that but so I'm moving through the kitchen well unbeknownst to me there was a uniformed officer named Mike Runkles with the Ogden Police Department Mike was about a block away and he had just finished up uh, a parolee check he was checking on a parolee Mike was part of a unit called the crime reduction unit for Ogden City they were a strictly a proactive street crimes unit. They didn't handle calls or anything like that. They just went out. Their job was like zero tolerance um, to go in and, and kind of stir the pot on crime. He was just finishing it up when the, the guys that had exited the home and were setting up a perimeter had called out shots fired and that an officer had been hit. So Mike jumped in his car and pulled up. He was only you know a, a few moments away. He says, Mike says, as he pulls up is when I was handing Grogan off to Zaccardi at the end of the driveway. Of course, I didn't see him. And I turn and that's when I start up the driveway and the shots start firing. Well, Mike jumps out of his car. He has a personal shotgun that he carried uh, that Ogden City let him carry. They didn't assign shotguns, but he had one. He grabs that shotgun and he starts running up the driveway as well. He said I was about 10 to... 15 feet in front of him. And then Jason Vanderwerf, who had been on perimeter, sees all this happening. So he breaks off perimeter and, and is following Mike Runkles. He's right on Mike's hip, following him in. Mike says as he gets to the carport door and looks in, 
is when I was at the top of the stairs slicing the pie to make my way into the kitchen. So he knows it's upstairs. So he starts to follow me. And as I turn and disappear around the corner of the kitchen, um, and as I'm moving through the kitchen, he's now made his way to the top of the stairs and he does the same thing. He's slicing the pie with his shotgun at the top of the stairs. Well, as soon as he peeks around the corner with that shotgun, that's the exact moment when all those shots are coming at me. And as Mike peeks around the corner, he immediately takes a shot directly in the face, uh, shoots him in the jaw, and it stops right at the base of his skull near his brainstem. And then a second shot hits him in the arm and shatters his elbow. So he drops to the ground, and Mike Runk, or uh, Jason Vanderwerf, who was right with him, he gets shot in the hip, and he drops down as well. Well, Vanderwerf kind of rolls down the stairs a little bit, and Mike, again, an amazing thing. I mean, the guy shot right through the front of his face, bullets lodged at the base of his skull. His elbow is completely shattered. He obviously can't fight anymore, but he's also, you know, another, just an amazing guy. He's not going to lay there and be a victim. So with his one good arm, he starts to drag himself down the stairs through the carport and is dragging himself through the carport because he's like, at least I'm going to get away. I'm not going to just lay here and be a victim. And as Vanderwerf is, is getting himself up, he sees Mike crawling away and he rushes over and grabs him and helps to drag him. So again, all this happens behind me. And I had no idea that any of this had even happened. I didn't know Mike was even there, and let alone had been shot. I'm still working my way through the kitchen. Uh, I remember I jumped over Frankum and was going to Casey, who was further in the house. And as I get to Casey, he's laying in the fetal position. And he's completely unconscious. I actually thought he was dead. And I saw this thing sticking out of the front of his skull. And I, I thought it was a piece of wood. I thought maybe like a, a round had hit like a two by four or something and had put a piece of wood in it, in his skull. But it actually turned out that was his skull. When he had gotten shot in the forehead, it had fractured and about a one and a half to two inch chunk was just sticking straight out of his, of his skull. Obviously unconscious, he's pool of blood. I reached down to grab him Um and well, as soon as I reach down is about when I, I run out and rather than reload or anything, I remember I just tucked my gun in my waistband. I can't tell you why I did that. I mean, I, I could have put it in my holster that I had on, but for some reason I put it in my waistband and I reach down and I'm just getting ready to grab Casey. And I feel, uh, I feel what feels like someone come up to the side of me on my right side and just bam, just hit me with what feels like a baseball bat. Uh, that's not what it was. It was, that was the first shot that got me. Um, and, uh, so that, that was the first one Where you know, hit you? in the hip. And so it goes through the front of my hip and then lodges up in the small of my back and, and doesn't exit it. It stops there. And you know, it's funny. Um, everyone always asks, and I now go around the country and, and teach at different conferences and things. And everyone always asks, they're like, what does it, what does it feel like to get shot? And the reality is it fucking hurts. That's what it feels like. <laughs> but the truth is that's actually a good thing. And somewhere along the line, I can't give credit to who it was. I wish I could, but somewhere along the line, I had learned that uh, if you get shot 
and you feel it and it's very, very painful, that that's actually a really good thing. Because if you're, if you're cognitive enough to understand that you just got shot and you're conscious and able to understand that you're in a lot of pain and, oh man, I just got shot, you're still good to go and you're still able to keep fighting. Like, you know, the shot that gets you will be the one that you just never see coming and hits you and lights out, whatever. There's nothing you can do about that. But if you're in pain, that just means you can buckle down and fight more. And that's exactly what happened. Like, I heard that. That was in my mind. I was like, oh, that hurts a lot. I'm good to go. Keep going. And it, simultaneously, because it was a double tap, but for me, they were com- two separate incidents, but I got shot a second time in the hip. Um, but that same process, that same thoughts of, okay, that hurts. You're fine. Keep going. Went through my mind. I was able to reach down and grab Casey and I start to drag him out of the home. I drag him through the kitchen, um, get over to the stairwell and I'm dragging him down the stairwell and Derek Draper's now coming through the door. And I was able to hand Casey off to Draper who starts to drag him down the driveway. Now at this point, Jared's still in the house. Um, he's down and I know I got to go back in and get him. Um, I, I, I know I kind of felt like I had been lucky to, to get out the way that I had, but I knew I had to go back again and get him. So this time there was no thought. It wasn't like a plan. I'm not going to slice the pie. You know, like I just was like, I'm just going to run as fast as I can and get in there and get him and get out. Uh, there was no suppressive fire, nothing like that. It was just get in and get out. So I, I hand Casey off. I turn, I start running up the, the stairs, get into the kitchen. Same thing happens. As soon as I get into the kitchen, he's just throwing rounds into the kitchen, just spraying and praying essentially. He's just, but they're coming everywhere. And it's such a small area. I can still feel them. I don't hear the gunshots. I can hear the the whistling of the bullets. I can hear them ricocheting and everything again is totally moving in slow motion. And I'm just moving through the kitchen. It feels like you're running in quicksand and I get to Jared and I start to reach down to grab him. And all of a sudden I feel, bam, I, I, I feel myself get shot a third time. And this one hit me in the, uh, the left bicep. Uh, this one hurt, but not nearly as bad as the other ones. I mean, in fairness, this one just hit the bicep muscle. And it just put a hole straight through it. I remember like actually looking at it um, in the hospital and it was just this hole. And I remember thinking like, oh, I could probably run a pencil through that. You know, it's just this hole through my bicep. It hurt, but it wasn't that bad. Um, I, say, I start to reach down. I just about have a hold of Jared and wham, I get hit a fourth time. This one hits me on the left side in the ribs. And, uh, the, I can't tell you why I'm here. Cause this one makes no sense to me, but it hits the rib. It actually hits a bone and rather than penetrate and go into my chest cavity, it hits and the bullet travels with the rib and, uh, and exits out the back. Doesn't actually penetrate like it ricochets off the rib kind of. And what it does is it blows off this chunk of meat. That's like, I don't, you know, three by four inches 
chunk of meat. And I, you know, I jokingly refer to, he blew a ribeye steak off the side of me. Um, and that one hurt. Uh, I mean, again, the same thought process, both those shots, you know, okay, it hurt. You're fine. Keep going, keep going. You can still fight. That one hurt real bad up to that point. That one was the worst so far. Knocked the wind out of me. Um, now a little bit ago when I was talking about us getting ready for this and I talked about my vest Velcro ripped off certainly would have been nice had I been wearing what I should have been wearing. Um, and so, because uh, that would have prevented that. But I was able to reach down. I was able to grab Jared under his armpits, and I start to drag him. Now, kind of going back, once they started to kind of investigate it, they learned that the suspect was hiding just right around the corner in the hallway. So he was about three feet from me during these shots. But as I start to drag Jared, he realizes I'm not shooting back or anything. And for the first time, he actually steps out into the open. He steps into the kitchen, and I see him. And this is the first time I actually see him. He takes direct aim at me. And uh, and I know that this is it. Like, we're two feet, three feet at the most. You know, my head feels like the size of a giant pumpkin sitting up there, and I'm just like, he's got me like there's nothing I can do. And the only thing I could think to do was, was I flinched and I kind of fell backwards. Well, I had dragged Jared enough through the kitchen that I had gotten to that stairwell. So when I fell backwards, I actually fell through the doorway into the stairwell. So as he was taking aim at me, he didn't get a shot off and I disappeared in that stairwell. And I land on my back, uh, my shoulders land on the landing, my back and legs are going up the stairs, and Jared lands on top of me, and he's looking straight up, so we're both facing up. And the suspect does essentially what he's been doing the whole time. He puts his hand around the corner of the stairwell, and he just starts spraying that stairwell. Just boom, 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 boom. And again, I don't hear the gunshots. I just hear the whiz of the bullets. And uh, um, and I f- two things kind of saved my life at this point. The first is because it's a downward angle, when he puts his hand around the corner, I don't think he takes into account that he needs to aim a little bit down. So a lot of the first shots went over the top of me, and they either hit the – the wall right above me or they went out the door and they were found out in the carport of the, of the driveway. And then the second thing that saves me is Jared Frankham. Uh, Jared's laying on top of me and it turns out Jared was shot uh, seven times and two of the shots were fatal. I was able to learn this watching the, the preliminary hearing, but uh, two of the shots were fatal. And the, one of them they were talking about was at a downward angle. And they were really harping on that just to show that that Jared wasn't a threat anymore, that essentially he was executed. Well, having been in the house and knowing where all the shots and the way they were flying, the, the only way that Jared would have been shot at that angle would have been when he was laying on top of me in the stairwell. So without a doubt, I know that Jared took a round that was coming for me and, you know, I'm here because of Jared. Um, and about that same so, so he fires, you know, he fires a, a old magazine, you know, probably 12 rounds at us in that stairwell. And, uh, and then I hear this loud 
click. And I, and I'm able to see that the slide on his semi-automatic handgun is locked back. And all of a sudden the hand disappears around the corner. Jared's laying on top of me and I'm able to push Jared and he goes, I'm pushing him out the door into the carport. And as I'm doing that, Jared and I lock eyes with each other. And he says to me, he says, Hey, Sarge, I can't feel my legs. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, that's bad, but at least he's conscious. And, and I say, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. And I push him out the door. And as I start to, to, to kind of sit up, I turn and laying right there on the stairwell is a shotgun. And I have no idea where this shotgun came from. Obviously it was, it was Mike Runkle's shotgun. You know, and whenever I tell this story, I always make a couple of jokes. I'm like, you know, for me, I didn't know. I didn't know if like you're in this video game and all of a the sudden they're like, you've leveled up to weapon number two, you know, because all of a sudden here it is. Or or maybe God's up there and he's like, man, you sure could use some help. Boom, here's a shotgun. See what you can do with that. But for me, all of a the sudden there's a shotgun there and I'm going to use it. And I recognized something about this that's different from other shootings. That was the aggressiveness of the suspect. You know, a lot of shootings, you, I think the suspect does it and he's trying to get away. You know, he's at a traffic stop or whatever. He shoots and drives away or he's in an alley and runs away. That wasn't this case. I mean, he was hunting us. He had laid an ambush and then he was advancing on us. And I knew that if I simply went out into the carport to grab Jared, he was just going to follow us out into the carport and continue to mow us down. So for me, this was kind of the line in the sand. I knew all my guys were out of the house. I knew everyone, you know, so there was no one else in the house but the suspect. And that was it. I was pissed, and I was going to try to do my part to end this. So I picked that shotgun up with the full intent of I'm going to bring the fight back to him. And as I'm starting to stand up, I don't have the shotgun all the way up. I'm just bringing it up. It's about hip level. And the suspect steps around the corner. And he was not expecting to see that guy there with a shotgun at all. I think he was doing what, what his plan was, is he would follow us, you know, down and just do what I said. He was going to mow us down in the carport. So all of a sudden, I'm bringing the shotgun up. We're a foot to 18 inches away from each other. And I just know I have him. And I pull the trigger on the shotgun. It's not my shotgun. I wasn't familiar with it. And uh, it doesn't go off because the safety was on. And at that exact same moment, the suspect lets out this scream like, ah, and he jumps back around the corner. But as he does that, he fires one shot. And that shot, just my luck, boom, goes and hits me right dead center in my right arm. And what it does is it blows, it shatters the bone, compound fractures the bone out the back of my arm, and the force of it flips my arm up to where it was actually laying up across my shoulders. I didn't know that. I just remember feeling it, you know, and I talked about the other ones and how they hurt. Well, this one really rung my bell. And as I turn and look, I don't see my arm over there anymore because it's folded up behind me. And my first thought was, oh, that son of a bitch just shot my arm clean off. And I remember thinking, well, I need it. And I had this moment where I looked at the ground expecting to see like 
my arm laying on the ground. I don't know. I guess I was going to pick it up and walk outside with it. But, and then about that same, about just as fast as I have that thought, everything comes rushing back to me. And, uh, and I realize, you, you, you know, you're still in a, you're still in a shootout. You can't, you know, don't be looking for your arm. So I step out into the carport. You know, obviously I had dropped the shotgun. I shot through both arms, but luckily that one in the left arm, you know, it wasn't as serious. And I'm able to grab Jared and I start dragging him down the driveway. Um, as we get, as we're moving down the driveway, all of a sudden, I hear that same familiar sound that I was hearing in the kitchen, that and I realized that I was being shot at again. The suspect had moved to the front porch and was shooting at me. He's about 15 feet from me at this point, and he's shooting as I'm trying to drag Jared down the driveway. And as I get to the end of the driveway, some more training kicks in. And I can give credit to the person. His name's uh, Eric Jones. He, when I was a baby patrol cop, he was uh, our firearms instructor at the sheriff's office. And I remember we had a range day and we were training and we were talking about different scenarios with shootings. And he's like, hey, if you're ever in a shooting, any cover is better than none. Even if it's as simple as the gutter, if it offers you a little bit of protection, use it. And those words popped in my head. And I'm at that down at the end of the driveway where the gutter was. And I was able to lay Jared in the gutter and I laid down next to him. And, uh, and then there was a lull in the shooting. I didn't know it at the time, but patrol guys were starting to arrive and they're now shooting back at him, which forced him back in the house. But all of a sudden I turn and I see a patrol car parked uh, near the neighbors in front of the neighbors it was Mike Runkle's patrol car uh, who had been shot in the face. And again, I had no idea Mike had even been shot. I didn't learn about it until uh, the early the following morning. But it's the same thing. Training kicks in from Eric Jones, our, the, the firearm sergeant. And he was like, you know, if you're ever in a shootout and, you're, and there's a car there, the safest spot on the car is the front end because you got the engine block and the wheel axles and everything that will provide you protection. So I saw that car that I hear that that training. So I move myself over to uh, that car and I sit down next to it. At this point, I remember being, I can't breathe, especially that one knocked the wind out of me. I'm losing a lot of blood. And and I remember thinking, I just need to sit here for a second and collect myself. And and then I'll start to help organize the, uh, you know, the, the perimeter and stuff. And one of the guys on my team from the sheriff's office, his name's Matt Jensen. Uh, we call him Shorty, but he comes running up to me and he kneels down next to me and, and Shorty's this guy that was always known for saying just the dumbest things at the dumbest times. And I remember he kneels down next to me and we're at the car and he said, Sarge, what are you doing? Are you taking a break? You know, and I wasn't witty or anything at the time. Cause I would have been like, yeah, yeah, I'm totally taking a break. Like I get a coffee break every four hours and it's right now. And, and I'm going to take coffee. And when I'm done, then we'll start to shoot. I'm like, no, you dumbass. I'm like, I've been shot. And I'll, he looks at me and he's like, holy shit, Sarge, you've been shot. You're bleeding everywhere. I'm like, I know. And he's like, we got to get you to the hospital. So he grabs me, uh, opens the back of the, the patrol car, pushes me in across the back. Him and a couple of the guys run over and grab Casey and bring him over and set Casey um, in the 
in on top of me. And then they go and grab Jared from the gutter and they're trying to push him in the front of the car and they can't get him in because the, has that computer system over the passenger seat and Jared being a big guy, they couldn't get him in. So ultimately they had to drag him a couple of blocks down the road. The ambulances wouldn't come up any closer because it was still a, an active shootout. Um, but then uh, Derek Draper jumped in the patrol car and, and drove me and Casey to the hospital. I got to tell you, I'm so amped up right now. <laughs> if you can see under this table, both legs are going 100 miles an hour. Yeah, it is a crazy deal. Well, and just the like you say, the detail you remember stuff. Um, so let's let's talk about the aftermath because um, you're now headed to the hospital. You've got the surround. This ends up in a standoff. Briefly, um, the suspect, what he ends up doing is, is when the patrol guys, uh, arrived, they start shooting at him. One guy in particular, John Hill from the Ogden police department has a rifle. He starts shooting at him, uh, with the rifle uh, actually clips him suspect rushes back through the house and he implements what I refer to as the escape plan. Uh, he had a large, uh, type buck knife, uh, you know, sitting on his windowsill in his bedroom. And he cuts the screen and then he had pre-made this rope out of like, uh, it's almost like, like those, when you escape in the, in the 1930s prison escape movies where they got a sheet and they tie knots in it to shimmy down. He had made one of those and he tosses it out the window and he starts to, to shimmy down. Well, uh, the, the shootout lasted so long, ultimately the, from start to finish, it was 13 minutes long, but, um, it wasn't going as quick as he had planned. And so by the time he starts to get out the back window, there was some patrol guys that uh, were starting to surround the back of the home. He takes a couple of shots at them and then uh, dives into a, a metal um, yard shed, you know, like you would use to store lawnmowers or whatever. And he ends up having a malfunction um, and he hadn't, wasn't able to work his way through that malfunction. So he had, tossed the gun out and then ultimately called out that he was surrendering and they took him into custody. So, yeah. What, what fantastic restraint those police officers had to show to not take him out right there. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it kind of shows the difference of, of the, what cops are. I mean, they could have easily, no one would have ever have said anything. They never would have been in trouble. It would have been completely justified, but you know, morally, it probably would have been wrong because he was surrendering. So they didn't do it. I mean, just kudos to them. That's what separates us from them. Yep. Yeah. So if you want to know something that's going to really make you piss, Steve, um, I've been pulling up some of the things the family of the piece of shit um, oh, said. Oh, some of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like um, they called you guys a gang of thugs, said that you had no right to be there. Um, let's see. They also said, um, that uh, he was being made a scapegoat for violent mistakes and procedures of the police. He thought his home was being invaded and said his military training just kicked in. You've got people announcing, dressed as police, announcing they're police, armed with a search warrant. You knock you, and announce and you wait. He thinks he's being invaded, but yet he's got an ambush plan. He's got an escape plan set up. So, um, and the family, you're going to, this is going to kill you, Steve. Um, after the illegal assault on his home by a gang of thugs and his inhumane treatment at the Weber County Correctional Institute, along with the recent loss of an unfair and unjust ruling by the court, 
he gave up hope of ever getting justice in his case. Yeah, they. And who spoke? Who spoke that? His family. Family. I got a. Re- I got a response to the family. Fuck you. Yep. Yeah, they. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, initially, the day after, uh, so January fifth, um, a bunch of news crews went to his family's home, his parents, and they talked to him. And I watched it. I was in the hospital. I watched it, and the dad's like, "Hey, you know, we're." we don't have any contact with him. We're estranged from him. We've, he's gone off the deep end, you know, uh, they, they basically were distancing himself from him. But as I think money and, you know, lawyers, lawyers and everything started, the narrative changed and they really, you know, the other thing that really pissed me off was they would call him a prisoner of war because of the (laughs) war on drugs. So they would march around flying the POW flag and, and he's a prisoner of war, which was very insulting to me to actual prisoners of war and and guys that have have you know served this country and 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 had that happen to him. I just I found that extremely insulting. So yeah, it became uh, somewhat controversial because of uh, his family and the way that they uh, acted and the way that they treated us. Well, yeah. let's let's not get too far. Let's rewind because um, Jared, uh, like you said, fatally injured. He does survive for a while. When did you first learn about Jared? So I, I make it to the hospital, um, and, and I'll backtrack just a little bit because I, I have a couple of funny stories that, that I always think kind of just shows the how it goes from, from one moment to the next. So when I first get to the hospital, um, we pull up to the hospital, and, and, and Derek Draper was driving, and he jumps out, and he goes running in. And he grabs a wheelchair and he comes running out and he grabs Casey and he puts him in the wheelchair and he rushes him off into the hospital. And I'm in the back seat and I'm laying there and and uh, and I'm thinking, well, you know, any moment um, Derek's going to come back and grab me. Well, he never does. And so eventually I realize I need to get myself into the hospital. So I kind of shimmy across the, oh, the back seat and I put my feet out on the ground and I sit up. And as I sit up, my arm comes flying over, that one that I thought he shot off. And that was the first time right then that I realized I still had my arm because it, it flopped over. So I was able to grab my right arm. I was like, oh, that's good. And I, I start to walk into the, to the hospital, to the emergency room doors. And the first little desk right there was a security guard. And he's just staring at me with these big eyes. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't get up. He doesn't help. He's just staring at me. And I'm like, okay, well, if you're not going to help me, then I'll just keep walking. And I walk in and then there's these two nurses at like the check-in station and they're just staring at me. No one says anything. And over off to my right is the waiting room and everyone's dead silent and it was full and everyone's just staring at me. And I remember being like, thinking to myself, like, what is wrong with everyone? So I just keep walking and I walk past everyone and I go back into the actual emergency room and I'm thinking, I'm just going to find the first open bed and I'm just going to lay down. And this little nurse finally comes up behind me and she's like, I got you, I got you. And gets me in a wheelchair and wheels me in and, and lays me down. And I mean, I realize now what there was total panic. Like these people in the hospital, the security guard and the nurses and the people waiting, they're watching police officer after police officer after police officer be wheeled into the hospital all shot up. You know, ultimately there was uh, six of us that were shot and, uh, and I don't realize that. I'm just like, what's their problem? But uh, but that's what it was. Everyone was just like, man, what what's going on in our city that that we're losing that? So I'm in the hospital, um, 
they put out a code over the intercom that basically was like every available doctor needs to come to the emergency room. Didn't matter if you were a cancer doctor or ear, nose and throat or whatever. And they assigned teams to each injured officer. Um, obviously Casey and Grogan and Runkles were uh, very critical condition. They didn't know if they were going to make it or not. They were all rushed into surgery. Uh, I was, I was put in and I remember telling the doctors, I kept telling them that I had been shot five times and they kept being like, no, you've only been shot three times. And I'm like, no, I haven't. I've been shot five times and nobody would believe me. And it took about an hour and they finally rolled me over and found some of the other. And they're like, holy hell, you've been shot five times. I'm like, I know. I've been telling you that. The heck? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and, and then another, you know, kind of little funny story. So as I'm laying there, I've probably been in the hospital for about 10 minutes. I realize uh, I probably ought to call um, my wife at the time. And, and let her know. So I reach into my pocket with my left hand. I pull out my cell phone and, and I call home. It's probably about nine o'clock at night. Um, and my 10 year old son, his name's Cordell. Uh, he answers the phone and I was like, Hey buddy, uh, what are you doing? And he's like, uh, Oh, I'm just getting ready for bed. I said, Oh, where's your mom? He's like, Oh, she's doing laundry or something. I said, okay, well I need to talk to her so I can hear him walking to go to mom. And all of a sudden, I feel this hand come over my shoulder and grab the phone. And I look up, and it's this male nurse. And he's starting to pull the phone out of my hand. And so we're having this little wrestling match over the phone. And I'm like, what the hell? Give me the And he's like, give me that phone. And I'm like, what the hell? Well, eventually, he's able to pry my fingers off the phone, and he tosses it, and it lands over in the corner of the room. I can hear that phone over there vibrating like, mm, mm. I didn't have it on ring. And, uh, and he's standing over there next to it. And I remember looking at him and I'm like, hand me that phone. And he just would go, mm -mm, mm -mm, and shake his head. And I, again, hand me that phone. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And I finally said, I said, if you don't have me that phone, I will get out of this bed and I will whip your ass. So he reaches down, he grabs the phone and he tosses it to me and I pick it up. Hello. And of course, it's my wife at the time. And, and she's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know this Milner's just attacked me. And she's like, what do you mean? She's like, Cordell said, it sounds like you're in a fight. I'm like, I am. She's like, where are you? I'm like, well, uh, duh. obviously I'm at the hospital. I just was attacked by a nurse. She's like, why'd the nurse attack you? I was like, I have no idea. She's like, I'm so confused. Like what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and this is how I, this is how she found out. And I said, oh, well I got shot. I'm at the hospital. You need to come up here. She's like, what? You got shot and a nurse attacked you? I'm like, I know, I know. You just need to come up here, which was a funny way to tell her. But the the, the cool, good thing is, is she told me, she's like, you know, that was the best way because I thought you were fine. And she's like, I just thought you maybe were grazed. And and I remember when she finally came into the to the hospital room, she would start screaming at me. And she's like, you're a liar. You're a liar. You're, you know, you're you're in you're in bad shape. Hey, well, I what did. Hold on. Don't, don't skip over that. What the fuck was the problem with the nurse? Yeah. So that's what I, so about a week later I was having, uh, I'd had surgery. They were making me walk up and down the hall, you know, to avoid blood clots and all that. The nurse comes running up to me and it's the same nurse. And I'm like, dude, what's the problem? And, uh, he's like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. He's like, I thought you were the bad guy. Cause they had cut all my clothes off when I first got there. 
So oh. I wasn't wearing anything. So, you know, I had a long goatee and stuff at the time. And he's like, oh, I just thought you were the bad guy. And I was like, okay, fair enough. And I said, well, then why did you give me the phone? And he said, well, I thought you were going to kick my ass. So. <laughs> so, but you know, it's one of those things. So I get it. They're not used to the same thing. But my first thought, if you're the bad guy, you're going to be surrounded by a bunch of cops. You ain't going anywhere, Skippy. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like it's never made sense to me, but for him, you know, I he'd never seen with it, never dealt it. And just that's. Okay. Yeah. I'm taking him off my hit list. That's decent enough explanation. All right. Did they bring the bad guy to the hospital? They took him to a separate hospital. There's two the hospitals that are major hospitals in Weber County. And Jared actually got took to the other hospital as well as the suspect. When they were transporting you guys, did nobody radio in to the dispatch, call the hospital, have the trauma team on standby? We need stretchers. We need wheelchairs. They did. Yeah. Uh, The problem is, you know, the incident was unfolding and it got so crazy so fast. They initially put it out and they do that. They say, hey, we got an injured officer, blah, blah, blah. The problem is, is it's such a major incident. And just like me, like I talked about when I'm in the basement and I think maybe they're shooting a dog and different things are going on. So much is happening that as everyone's talking over the radio, you had guys that were like, okay, where's the downed officer? Because initially it came out downed officer for Sean Grogan. And someone would call over the radio because they had Mike Runkles. I have the downed officer. I'm getting him to the hospital. So there's this whole miscommunication on what's going on. I mean, you actually had a team of patrol guys, uh, John Hill being one of them, that had organized where they were getting a patrol car and they were armoring it up with their old uh, vests, bulletproof vests, uh, basically to make a rescue vehicle. And they kept being like, where's the downed officer? We're coming in. And and then you have someone say, well, I have the downed officer in my car, meaning Mike Runkles, and I'm getting him to the hospital. So such miscommunication uh, going on. It's just a crazy incident. When did you find out about Jared? How, and how did you find out about Jared? So I'm in the hospital. Uh, I got moved to critical care. They decided they were going to hold off on my surgery for a couple of hours uh, because they were operating on uh, the three guys with head wounds. So they didn't want to have everybody tied up, all the surgeons tied up if, you know, if, if something bad happened. So they had put me in, they were monitoring me and, uh, and I had this other nurse in there and uh, it was another male nurse, but this guy was Paul Bunyan. I mean, he's like six, six, like just this burly dude with this big burly beard. I, I'm pretty sure he had flannels underneath his scrubs and probably Well, you threatened to kick the last guy's ass, so they just put somebody in there to fight with you. Yeah, time. that's exactly. They brought, they brought in the heavy hitter, apparently. But this guy was so attentive. And, I, you know, I'm laying in my bed, and both arms are bandaged up, and I can't really move. And I end up getting this, like, major itch on my inner thigh, on my left leg. And I remember trying to like reach down and grab it and to scratch. And I can't because my arms are all bandaged up and everything. And all of the sudden, I feel this giant man hand come up underneath the sheet and start scratching my inner thigh. And this burly voice is like, did I get it? And, uh, and I'm laughing with him. I'm like, no, it's a little further up and a little more in, like, I'm joking. Cause I'm in high spirits. Cause for me, uh, I didn't know about Runkles getting shot. I hadn't heard yet. I, I didn't know about Vanderwerf getting shot. Casey was in the car with me. And when they put him in the car, he was conscious, or at least I thought he was cause his eyes were open where I initially thought he was dead. Uh, he didn't talk or anything. It turns out he wasn't conscious, but 
I thought he was. Uh, and I knew that Grogan had made it to the hospital. And then the last that I knew of Jared was when he told me he couldn't feel his legs, but I thought he was still conscious. So I was in fantastic spirits. I was joking with the nurses. I'm joking with this nurse, you know, sir, I'm going to give you five minutes to stop scratching my inner thigh like that, you know, just joking around. And about that same time, my lieutenant comes in and, uh, and I'm joking with him. I'm like, Hey, LT, uh, this guy here, he's full service. He's giving me all the special treatment. He's rubbing my inner thigh and I'm laughing and I can tell something's bad because he's my lieutenant's not laughing. He's just very solemn. And he says, Nate, I need to tell you something. Jared died. And that's exactly what it felt like for me. Like the air just went out of the room. One minute I'm like joking with this nurse and the next minute they just told me. Uh, what had happened is, is Jared was rushed into surgery and ended up dying on the, the surgeon's table shortly after midnight on January 5th. And so uh, so that's how, that's how I was told. And it was devastating. Like it, like, you know, we were very, very close. All of us were. We love Jared. Yeah. Heartbreaking. It, and I'm reading some of these additional, pulled up some of these additional stories. Um, he tried to say, the piece of shit tried to say uh, that, um, hey, thought I was being robbed, didn't hear the officers announce their presence, his military training kicked in. But here's the other kicker too, Steve, though. Back in 2011, uh, police say the piece of shit told a friend that if officers ever tried to stop his marijuana cultivation, he'd go out in a blaze of glory and shoot to kill. Mm-hmm. He did. And you know what? I mean, he's such a law-abiding citizen. That's why he went ahead and had that that knife up there next to the window, and he had that rope tied with knots in it so he had an escape route because he's just a peaceful, loving person. What a bunch of bullshit. And, and you know, and it's unfortunate. And that's and we're seeing it all the time now. Anytime you see, like, some sort of a shooting, it turns, turns high profile. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter what the reality is. You know, the the more controversial something is, the more clicks it's going to get, which is what uh, is driving, you know, media in today's society. And so they want it to be controversial, even when it's not. And and they made this into it, which what they don't realize is that tears apart people's families. That tore apart my family. That completely consumed me for a year, reading all that bullshit, all those lies that I knew weren't true. And you can't say anything back because up until, and, and he, you know, um, he started to talk a little bit about what happened, but, but we haven't, we haven't said exactly what happened to the suspect, but we were having to protect the case. We knew that they were trying to bait us, that the defense was trying to debate us to say that, you know, uh, if we would come out and defend some of these, some of these lies that, that they would then turn around and be like, oh, they're tainting the jury pool, blah, 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 and, and hope to use that against us. So we had to stay silent. We couldn't, we couldn't rebut it. You had to stay silent until May 14th, 2013. Right. Yep. And that is because they tried all these different defenses. They claimed all kinds of shit. They claimed that, that it was all friendly fire, that we shot each other, all this stuff that wasn't true. I mean, everything was proven. Every bullet that was taken out of a cop was fired, including the one that I still have, was fired from a nine millimeter Beretta tied to his gun. I mean, so it was all, they just whittled down all the bullshit. So the last kind of stand that they took was they tried to claim that Jason Vanderwerf, the case agent, 
who was the affiant in the search warrant, they tried to claim that he intentionally lied in the search warrant, that he intentionally misled the judge. And they wanted to have a hearing to where they could present evidence to basically claim that Vanderwerf was a liar. And the judge wasn't just going to give them a hearing. He was he wanted a preliminary hearing. He's like, hey, I just want to hear what you think evidence-wise you have, and we'll determine if we're actually going to have the hearing. So they presented the little evidence. They had none. The judge said, no, we're absolutely not going to, to allow that, that Vanderwerf didn't lie. And he's like, furthermore, there's so much probable cause on this. I would have issued the search warrant. He wasn't the signing judge on the warrant. And he's like, I would have issued it. We're not, you're not allowed to use anything with the warrant as a defense. And, and the suspect knew. He knew exactly what they, – they were seeking the death penalty in this case. Um, he knew he was guilty. He knew what he did. I mean he's stepping over police radios that are talking because guys dropped him when they got shot. He's stepping over police gear. He's shooting out the front door at – and there's a marked police car in front of his house. Like, you know – Mike Runkles, who was shot, was in uniform. So Well, and not only that, they've got some dash cam video, I think, of Runkles' vehicle when he pulls up. You've got the video of the scene, so you see the red and blue lights. It's it Yep. But it's one of those things is we don't have it's like it that's uh, it's such an absurd argument. It did it uh it deserves no response to a bullshit thing like that. It's like if you can't determine that it's police, that's the end of this conversation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so, what kind of idiot is he? Well, I can tell you what kind of idiot he is. We're about to find out. Uh, what kind of idiot is he? Well, after he lost that hearing, he went back to jail and ended up hanging himself in his jail cell. Killed himself. He's a room temperature idiot now, Murph. That's the best <laughs> kind. The best kind. That's exactly what he deserved. We have, I, I'm telling you what. Folks may think that we're just uh, uh, have no compassion. I have compassion, but not for him. Not right. for what he did, not for how his family treated you guys. We have compassion for people who get shot that shouldn't, which are the cops. We have compassion for people who get caught up in the gunfire. And look, I even feel bad for people who they get to that point where they feel like they have no choice but to fire at the cops. It's suicide by cops. I actually have compassion for those folks because what a tortured life you must lead to get to that point where the only way for you to end it is to make somebody kill you. You mm-hmm. don't do it yourself. Um but, but here's the guy who prepared for you guys and was waiting a, on you. This was an ambush. This was a prepared assault location. It was an ambush. So it turned out he was home each of those times we went and tried to do the knock and talk. Those five times we went to his house to try to do a knock and talk. Uh, it turns out he worked graveyards, and uh, so he was home. So he knew. He knew that we were going to come back eventually with a warrant. And like Morgan said, when uh, he told a friend – uh, it was actually the girlfriend. He said, if the cops ever come and try to take my plants, I'm going to kill them all. And he even told her, I'll escape out the back if I can, which is exactly what he did. She went to court and testified to that in the prelim, and uh, and she got raked over the coals by the defense. You know, And to her credit, she stuck by it. She's like, she's like, I didn't believe him. So I didn't tell them because I didn't believe him. I just thought he was, you know talking just bragging yeah yeah well um so did this result in a lawsuit no no the there was no lawsuits uh, some of the guys on my team and myself we molded over on whether we should sue uh, right. which would kind of was unprecedented it doesn't ever happen you know a lot of times cops 
they just take it and they just assume, oh, it's part of the job. But even if you sued, what, who, who and what are you going to sue? The guy's probably got no assets, no nothing. Exactly. And that's what it was. He had no assets. He had nothing. He, he you know, he was over his head in his house. Uh, so there was nothing there. And, uh, and so we didn't, um, his family talked a little bit about it, but you know, obviously the facts aren't on their side, so they didn't end up suing. Either. Well, that's the old statement. When the law's against you, argue the facts. When the facts are against you, argue the law. And when the law and the facts are against you, then attack the defendants, you know, or attack the plaintiffs, you know, or attack. And that's they sure had that nothing on their side. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So, so Let's talk about you. Um, how's the recovery been? Because it, yeah. uh, well, first of all, um, Murph, he let's, before we get into the recovery, let's talk about you were honored twice uh, as the uh, National Law Enforcement Officer Memorials Officer of the Month. Then you also received the State and Local Law Enforcement Congressional Badge of Bravery um, for, the, for the, what you did. Yeah, that comes from the United States Congress. Um, I also received the Medal of Valor, which is the the highest award for valor in the country, and that that comes from the the office of the president. Um, you so, are so our I, second Medal of Valor winner on here. We had Mike Neal on here, the Arkansas Fish and Game Warden, who took out the sovereign citizens. Yeah, who yeah, also took out Vice President Biden. Tell you, nut check, nut check the. <laughs> Former vice president, current press. We have the video of it too. People think we're joking. We found the video of it, and you can see the look where Mike looks and he says, "Oops, just hit his nuts." <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's got nothing to do with politics. It's just funny. <laughs> yeah, it totally is funny. Absolutely is funny. So, so yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I've been honored um, with a ton of of, of different. Uh, um, recognition, uh, which is great, but you know, the, the, I work with a lot of real heroes. That's the way I look at it. You know, Jared Franken was a real hero. And Mike I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say you would trade every, every one of those awards back in to have your buddy back with you in a live hundred percent, hundred percent. Yep. So, you know, and, and, and some of the guys there that night, you know, Mike Runkles and, and Sean Grogan and, uh, Casey Burrell and Derek Draper and those guys, you know, the stuff that they did, you know, that, that those guys are heroes. I just, I just got lucky because he's a bad shot. Lucky. You got five freaking bullets in it, brother. That's not luck. <laughs> well, he That's was the grace of God. Right he was there. good enough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and just one of those things, like we tell other folks, we just had this discussion yesterday. Um, with another guest that's coming up, um, it just wasn't your day to die, brother. You know, that's exactly it. Yep. That's, that's what I believe. It wasn't my day because there's no reason that one that hit me in the ribs shouldn't have killed me, but for whatever reason it didn't, you know, and that, when you said that, it reminded me, uh, as a rookie police officer, Selena, I get, I got sent to a shooting. Um, and I'm the first officer on the scene, but I'm staying outside. I, I learned my lesson. I didn't go rushing in. Nate, I stayed outside and wait, waited for backup, but out on the front lawn is the dude that got shot. So I'm covering, covering him. There's another guy that comes out. I put him on the ground. Backup gets there. And so the one guy out there laying, he's dead now. I can say his name is a guy named Stevie Thomas, but we go up there and he's definitely got a bullet wound, you know, in his chest. And so EMS shows up and I'd gone through, uh, I, I was actually just finishing up my EMT training. And the EMTs knew me because I'd been riding with them, doing my clinicals and stuff like that. So they go up there and they bring out their uh, defibrillator and stuff, which has the ability to put leads on there and see a heartbeat. So they put it on there. They put the leads on there. They hooked it up. They said, oh, we got a flatline. Start CPR. I started CPR. The dude was still alive. They had it set the paddles instead of leads so it showed a flatline. So I'm doing CPR on a live guy, which let me tell you, let me tell you, that's how you quickly find out he's alive. 
Um, and <laughs> what just happened I saved with him. <laughs> yeah, his girlfriend, they got into a domestic girlfriend, had shot him with the 25 auto. It hit his rib. And same thing, went around underneath the skin of his back and lodged on the opposite side. So all the doctor did was make a little like one inch incision and out pops the bullet. So we're in court. And I remember the county attorney's name to this day, Rex Lorson, we're in front of a judge. And um, they were making motions and stuff because Stevie gets up there. And of course, oh, no, it was an accident. I shot myself. It wasn't her because we were going to charge her. And he, of course, kind of hard to do it when the victim doesn't want to cooperate. And he says, are there any other motions the court should hear? And the, the, the county attorney raises his hand and says, yes, you are not make a motion. We'd like to get her a bigger weapon next time. And <laughs> that went over like a turd in a punch bowl. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, uh, so uh, Morgan had asked you about your recovery. So yeah. what's the long, 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 lifelong lasting effects of this? Yeah. So, uh, so when I initially get in there, um, it's kind of crazy. I, I never thought I was going to die. Like I, I, to me, they were all just, you know, just wounds. Um, they put this thing in my, in my neck when I first got there, they, they put this line in my neck and they capped it. And it was about a week later they came in. I had had a couple of surgeries and they came in and, and they pulled it out. And, uh, and I remember asking the doctor, I was like, you know, what, what's up with that? And he says, oh, we have this line into your heart. Uh, we were prepared for you to, uh, to, if you died or your heart stopped, we were going to pump you full of steroids, get your heart going again. I remember being like, well, I never thought I was going to die. And, uh, and he's like, well, you know, that's probably why you didn't. Um, you know, it's just that I think you can talk yourself into living, you talk yourself into dying. Um, for me, I, I just kind of figured, you know, I was, I, I would, you know, had a little bit of a long road of recovery, which I did. I, I went into surgery. Um, they removed the bullet from my back. That was the only one. The, the rest of them were through and through. Took about, I went to work about six months later. I went back uh, working narcotics again. They had, they had to rebuild my arm, my right arm. That was metal. Um, they put metal in there to, for the bone and everything. The left arm, that hole, uh, it just kind of filled in. And then the, the, the big one on the, the, the left rib cage there, they just, the, you, all you can do is just kind of mash it back together and let it heal and then mash it back together and let it heal. And that, that took about a year, but with the, this right arm, the, well, in my legs, a lot of nerve damage, um, that still haunts me to this day, you know, but it is what it is. But the worst one was that right arm. And I got back to work about six months and, and I was back to work for about two weeks and I got really sick. Uh, I kept getting sick. Um, even, even when I, I, you know, I was in the hospital initially for about two weeks, got out, had to go back. I went septic. My arm was infected. Uh, they operated on it, um, got out, you know, this kind of went on for a few months. I finally got to where I thought I was okay. Went back to work. And about two weeks later, I went septic again, had to go back into the hospital, was in there for a while, got out, went back to work, went septic again. It turned out that the metal that they had rebuilt my arm with had staff on it. So they would treat me and I would get better and they'd put all these crazy antibiotics on me, you know, and I'd get better. But because it was on the metal, as soon as I was off of them, it would grow again and infect me again. So I ended up, it took me about a year and a half to fully recover from the arm. They had to redo the metal, take it out, redo it. 
Um, but once they did, then I, I've been pretty good. Uh, I, the weird thing is, is I lost a lot of my hearing uh, in my left ear. And they what? say that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> because I have these these headphones on, and I can sit, like I can focus on you guys. I can hear real well. But See, only cops can dick with other cops like that. Even if you've been shot, it's like you don't, pal. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> hey, Cut you know, no slack. Yeah, you go fire away. I don't care. It doesn't bug me. <laughs> but yeah, I lost eighty percent in my left ear and and sixty percent of hearing in my in my right ear. Wow, from what? From all the gunshots? Yeah, they said that uh, it wasn't. Uh, was it the proximity of the, the shots yeah, going off? Exactly. It was so close that it ended up blowing out my eardrums. Most of those wow. shots, it turns out, when we go back and look at the whole thing, he was usually between two to three feet from me. I just couldn't see him because the way he was hiding in the dark and stuff. You know, I've, I've, I've lost the upper hearing ranges in my hearing, uh, but not so much from firearms, but more from the helicopters and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure that would do it too. I mean, it it does come in handy, you know. I uh, and and we can get into this too. I'm happy to talk about this because it ended up that whole incident ended up uh, costing me my marriage. But I'm 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 newly remarried, and and it does come in handy with my new wife because if she says something I don't want to hear, then <laughs> hey. Oh, you were talking. I, what? Yeah, I'm legally deaf, and you can't pick on a handicapped person. It's, it's, it's against the law. It's against yeah, the law. That's what I tell her all the time. ADA, I am protected. ADA can't say anything. What, what about the uh, other officers that were wounded? Yeah. Did everybody recuperate? Everybody recuperated. Um, believe it or not, uh, Casey Burrell t- took long time, but he eventually came back. Uh, he went back into narcotics. He's still working narcotics to the day, and Casey's the one that had that skull sticking out of the front um mike runkles the bullet is still in mike runkles base of his skull they can't take it out they said if it's like literally less than a millimeter if they bump it hits his brain stem he'll die so they can't take it out he went back eventually he got transferred into narcotics and he's been promoted up to um a, he's a patrol lieutenant now for ogden city uh sean grogan went back he recovered they had to wire his jaw shut uh he went back to the strike force he was in strike force for a ton of years and and now he's one of the ogden city's homicide detectives uh jason vanderwerf who was shot in the hip uh he worked for roy city police department and he ended up laddering lateraling over to ogden city uh and he's been promoted he's a lieutenant in the patrol division at ogden as well um, so yeah, every, everybody is, is doing fantastic, you know? Um, yeah. Yep. You know, and so we told, you know, we told our listeners at the beginning of this, that we've had a lot of heroes on here who have been wounded in the line of duty, you know, survive and they come on board, come on with us and tell their story. But then there's also, a, this is a step higher or a step further, I guess, not higher, but further in the fact that under fire, wounded, had the presence of mind to pull one victim out, a brother police officer, and then you went back in a second time and suffered all these additional wounds. Uh, God bless Jared and his family. Uh, Morgan, thank you for dedicating today's show to Jared's memory. Well, uh, let me tell you uh, something who forget didn't forget guys. Jared's memory. Uh, I'm going to read a little thing to you. So uh, one of the things I support – I in fact, all of my – if you go to Amazon, you can enroll what they call Smile, and you can make donations. So the one I donate to is the Officer Down Memorial page. I do their rides every year. So the last most recent reflection on Jared's page was written um, 
January 4th, 2022, by somebody called Lieutenant Nate Hutchinson. Ten years ago today, still think about you every day. My mission is to continue to tell your story as I travel the country telling people about your sacrifice. We continue to laugh at the funny times we shared and the lovable, dumb comments you'd make. I know you are laughing each time with us. Valhalla, brother. So until Valhalla, we salute. Yeah, yeah. I try to go on there. I I probably go on once a year and post a memory Mm. to him. Never forget. Mm -hmm. Never forget. Dude, I'm Holy sorry. I'm, I'm, it's like I got to stop because I'm like, I'm not crying. You're crying. No, I'm not crying. You're crying. I can hear. Yeah. So, so I got to. What a what an amazing story. But what an amazing thing for you. Let's close out with this. Just tell us what you're doing now. So uh, is your law enforcement career still active? Did it come to an end? What are you doing? Yeah. So I, I went back. Um, I did another 10 years. I just recently retired. Um, and so now I do two things. Uh, the first thing that I do is I go around and teach, uh, very fortunate in having opportunities to go around mostly narcotics or gangs conferences, but I have a, uh, a, a whole presentation with videos and crime scene photos and everything. And I, and I talk about the incident, hoping to kind of pay some of the some of the lessons learned forward and, and hopefully help, uh, brother and sister police officers, um, that if they're ever in a similar situation that, you know, maybe, maybe something I say can, can help them. So, so I do that. I, I, I travel quite a bit doing that. I have a couple coming up. Um, we're, I'm teaching in, uh, for Tennessee narcotics and Chattanooga in November. And then I'm teaching for, uh, um, a Haida class in Hilton head for, uh, um, a Haida group out there in, in November as well. So I, I do that. And then, uh, the other thing that I got into was real estate. Uh, I got my real estate license and starting a second career, uh, buying and selling homes. Sweet. Well, then the, 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 then the only thing I can ask you is what have you sold today? I mean, cause it don't matter what you did yesterday. I, What'd oh, you do it, today? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I haven't sold anything today, but the day's young. So maybe we'll still get one. And you've been wasting your time with a couple of old farts on this podcast. <laughs> there you go. So. That's right. I've loved every minute of it. It's been a blast. Well, this is uh, this has been an honor for us to have you on here. Thank you, brother. It's uh, I think Will Will Stanett in Oklahoma is the one that introduced us to you. Yep. So we got to give him a shout out. Um, just unbelievable, unfreaking believable. Just you know that warrior mindset is what kept you alive, and I love the fact that the, your your initial training officer, his words are coming back. You feel that pain? You're still alive. You're still in the fight. Yep. Yep. Good words. And, and, and I think that you know. I think that's a lesson. I mean, I, I try to tell people that because that's just not a cop lesson. That's a life lesson. I mean, in today's world, you never know. if. But if you're, you know, somewhere and something crazy happens, mass shootings, we see them occasionally. I think people can will themselves to live. I really do. And I try to tell that to anyone. Like, just because you're shot, like, just get pissed. Well, and let me tell you. They did the study on that. I think the FBI, some other folks did some research, and they looked at officers that had non-fatal wounds, but with all the, the, you know, you look at the contemporaneous stuff in the accounts, they talked themselves into dying. Oh, it's bad. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Dude, yep. shut the fuck up. You're not going to die. Exactly. To your point, you can you can talk yourself into living or you can talk yourself into dying. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're sure glad you talked yourself into living because this would have been an awkward podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have. <laughs> Just wouldn't have been the same. 
What's that? I'm sorry. It just the, the podcast wouldn't have been the same would about you. Same. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so look, um, you hang on. Don't go anywhere. We're dedicating this to Agent Gerald Jared Daniel Frankham, the Ogden Police Department. End of watch Thursday, January fifth, twenty twelve. We salute you. We salute him until Valhalla, brother. You guys stay there. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. When you go to the dictionary and you look up the word stud, it says, see Nathan Hutchinson. (laughs) Did we warn you? You know, and think about what you just heard. And do you, I mean, just think about, could you put yourself in Nate's shoes and go back in there not once, but twice to help out your partners? I hope you could. You know what? I think I could when I was younger at this old age now. I don't know that I could. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, just think about it and then let us know. Let us know your thoughts on this. You know, come and join us on our fan page on Facebook, uh, Game of Crime fans. Get through, get get it to us through our uh, um, website. Or go on and rate us and give us your comments. I, we'd really like to hear what you think about Nate Hutchinson and his heroic actions. Yeah, and Nate will tell you, were mistakes made that day? Yeah, but mistakes, even though you make mistakes, it doesn't mean that the other guy gets to kill cops. Right. And this guy was prepared. We don't, we don't, we, we refuse to use his name. He's just simply referred to as POS. And as you found out in the episode, he's a dead POS. He took the chicken shit way out. He hung himself in jail, mm-hmm. you know, Over- which is... And here's the thing that gets me. Everybody says weed is a victimless crime. Well, was it a victimless crime that day? Was not. I mean, um, Nate said they were only going to give him a citation. That's all he was going to get. At the most. And, and the other thing, too, they may have just dismantled it. I mean, mm-hmm. quite frankly, it's like he said, they got bigger things to work on. They were doing cartel stuff, big investigations. This was a tip that had been hanging around for a few months, Murph. It's not like, oh, my God, it's a guy smoking weed. We got to go bust down his door and kick ass and take names. It was mm-hmm. like... That was absolute low priority, and it didn't get worked on till over uh, Christmas when things had slowed down and they were catching up on their tips. So, right, right. But hey, but look, at the end of the day, though, too, it's like, um, you, you know, you can't forget um, the people who suffered through this, all of his partners. Uh, obviously, we dedicated the episode, so you guys listen to that. We'll tell you about mm-hmm. the dedication. But at the end of the day, um, I got to tell you, man, it's just what these guys do. Um, and again, we just want to make sure that we call out uh, Jared Frankham. Jared Frankham was uh, the agent, was the officer, was Nate's buddy, who was killed in the shootout. A um, couple other cops were injured. And in spite of all of this, in spite of, you know, you know, th- there's a definition, too, that talks about, um, they say, are you scared? Absolutely. But you still go out and do your job, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, if, you, if you're in a situation like that and you're not scared, that's the kind, that's when you make stupid mistakes and you cowboy it and you John Wayne it. So um, this is dedicated to Jared Frankham, a member of the Weber County Narcotics Strike uh, Task Force, um, died in the line of duty. And uh, guys, if you just wonder what's it, what's it like, Nate will live with this not only because his partner died, but because of the injuries he suffered. He gets to live with this for the rest of his life. So we wish him well on this. Uh, he's got a new career. I believe it is with real estate, man. He is buying and selling homes. Yep. So if yeah. you need a home out there, look up Nate Hutchinson. Say, hey, Nate, I got a home. I need you. I need a hero for a real estate agent. Um, and I and I just, I was, uh, I apologize in the opening. I couldn't remember the officer that uh, introduced us to, to uh, Nate is Wayne Stinnett in Oklahoma. So brother, thank you very much, Wayne, for the introduction. What a hell of an interview and what a hell of a hero. 
Yeah, and that's, you know, the other thing, too, is we get a lot of our guests now because of people listen to the podcast, they're in law enforcement, or they know somebody who is, they say, hey, this would be a great story. So if you've got stuff, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com, just drop us a note over there. But again, Jared Frankham, um, uh, this episode is dedicated in the honor of his memory and in the honor of all the guys who, uh, and men and women around Murph, too. The other thing, too, is when we're recording this, uh, this is the this is in October, the second week of October, 2022. Been a lot of cops die this last week. It has been a bad week for law enforcement. Yeah, it's it's not getting any better out there. Politicians, how about y'all waking up, addressing the issues for us? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's bring her back now. So, hey guys, thanks again, once again, thanks again for being on here. And what Murph said, we forgot to do it in the intro, so apologies. But our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, runs our Game of Crimes fan pay or fan group. So just go Game of Crimes. And look it up. Just answer a couple simple questions. If you got a heartbeat, you know, and you're barely breathing, you can figure out a couple. Just even get close, and you'll be provided entry into the secret society that is called Game of Crimes fans. So, and guys, whatever you on. do, don't take off Sandy. No, you don't. And if she offers you food, eat it. <laughs> we got to get up there. I'll try to cook. It. I know. Well, we're, we're we're talking about doing a show, so that's the other thing too. We're talking about 2023. Looking at do we do at least a select few road shows? Take some of these interviews on the road. Um, and you don't know. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll do something. You never know. You never, never know, know what's going to happen on Game of Crimes. You never know what's going to happen, but I do know what's going to happen if you go to Apple and Spotify and hit those five stars. It's going to make more people find us and love us and like us and listen to us. And once you like us and love us and listen to us, you'll never go anywhere else again. So just go hit those five stars. <laughs> and if you're gullible enough to believe that, we've got a bridge. <laughs> I'll get a hold of Nathan and he'll sell you a house. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. And also head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com over at our website. We've got our merch uh, mailing list, things like that. Fun stuff. Hit us up on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And uh, just head on over to PayPal.com too. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com if you want to just do a pause for the cause. But I leave you this with Murph, right? We said, where do you got to be? Where do you got to be? And we are recording something. So where do you got to be if you want to hear the next installment of You Can't Make This Shit Up? Come on over and join us on Patreon. Give us a shot over there. Listen to just come on and, and listen to the different things and see. I know you're going to think it's worth it. I have to be careful what I say because Morgan will fuss at me if I say I will. Wrong if you word. use that C word, I will just come through the screen <laughs> and I will choke you. But give us a shot. There's a lot of stuff on there. You know, here we we stay apolitical and we try to stay focused on the uh, on the interview that we're with. We do have some side stories occasionally, but over there we get a little more personal. Um, we, try, we live, we relive a lot of war stories on the, on the Patreon, but, uh, there's some cool stuff on there that you're not going to hear anywhere else. So just come over and try us out. And some of the war stories we relive, we don't know if we actually did them, but at this age, man, we could have. So that's the only thing that counts. Yeah. It sounds like something I might've done. Yeah. We both just had birthdays this month. So, Hey, look at us. We made it another year. <laughs> yeah. That's We're, right. Morgan's and his sister is going to come on here shortly. Well, there's something you want to hear on the Patreon. Come over because we're going to have Morgan's sister on here with us shortly. Sitting in the studio as we record it. All right, guys. So, Hey, let's bring this to a close. So we want to thank you guys once again. Uh, for being supporters out there. Like I say, just go over to the website, tell one, share one, share this podcast with folks. And rem and remember, Murph and I are working on a new format. We plan on launching that in January mm -hmm. and we have some good stories coming up for that. So we're going to have a new format. It's going to be a, a little different, just kind of prepping you guys. It's going to be uh, a little shorter. Um, we're looking at the realities of what it takes to put on podcasts and get people out there. Now, 
the good thing is, is that we're not going to get away from telling our stories. Some of the stories may end up on Patreon, the longer versions of them, but we're going to do things to get, uh, move along, uh, tell the story in just a little bit different fashion. Uh, but we still want to dive into it and do things, but we've got some stuff coming up with families of fentanyl. Um, we're thinking about doing an entire month just dedicated to telling stories about the families, uh, who have died, uh, have had family members die from poisonings, not overdoses, people poisonings. Yep. Um, yeah, and, well, through uh, through our contacts with Morgan, uh, through uh, our contacts with Derek Maltz, who's how did you confuse me with Derek? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about you. I look, I'm looking at you for one reason. Um, he's got some connections with the Faces of Fentanyl group. Uh, we've got some personal friends that we've been on Capitol Hill with who've suffered losses in their families. Uh, law enforcement officers all around the country sending recommendations for us about families who have suffered through these tragedies. So. It's, it is going to be a little bit different in the fact that it's not going to be a police story, you know, a police hero telling you about their story, but it's that important. It's that important not only to us, but to you and our nation, what's going on. Yeah, and if you want to talk about a dangerous game, fentanyl is, is absolutely one of the most, if not the most dangerous game going on out there right now, because name one other drug, name one other drug that kills over 100,000 people a year. Right, right. It's, we got to do something, and this is going to be our little contribution. Yeah. We're going to change the narrative. You never use, unless it's a true overdose, you don't use the word overdose. It's a poisoning. It's a criminal act and it ought to be investigated. But that being said, let's bring this to a close. So we want to thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most fun and friendly, dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. 